Well, there's a difference between famous last words and last words of the famous. Right? Do you know the difference between famous last words and last words of the famous? Here's some famous last words. Um, don't worry, it has airbags. Right? Just that's, that's some of them. Or, hey, what's that buzzing noise? Famous last words. No, no, he doesn't bite. Famous last words. I can pass this guy. Famous last words. Oh, no, my brakes are fine. Famous last words. Nah, I don't think we need to go to the hospital. Here, here's one of my favorites. Famous last words. So, you're, you're a cannibal? <laughs> um, famous last words. I wonder where the mother bear is. Famous last words. These are the good kind of mushrooms. Famous last words. Look, Ma, no hands. Famous last words. Husbands, you're probably familiar with this. Oh, we don't need reservations. Uh, famous last words. Uh, give me a match. I, I think my gas tank is empty. Right. How, about, how about one more, right? What happens if we touch these two wires to get... Famous last words. The, the last words of the famous aren't normally quite so humorous. Sometimes they're, they're sad. Edgar Allan Poe, the poet who lived lies of, a life of lies and drunkenness, died at age of 40, founded a street near death, and he said, Lord, help my poor soul. Or uh, Steve Jobs, he made a big dent in this world only to die saying, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Or Winston Churchill, the, the great heroic leader during World War II, right? he said, I'm, I'm bored with it all. And sometimes the last words are, are mundane. Elvis Presley, his last words were told to his fiancée, they were in a hotel, he said, uh, I'm going to the bathroom to read. It wasn't a hotel, going to the bathroom. And she, was, she later found him unresponsive. Sometimes famous last words are endearing. Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes story, said to his wife, last thing he said, you are wonderful. T.S. Eliot, the famous poet, whispered the name of his wife as he died, Valerie, he said. Or Michael Landon, who played Pa, in Little House on the Prairie. Family, she was all gathered around. And I think his son said, Pa, it's time to go. He said, it's time. I love you all. Sometimes they're ironic. Pistol Pete Maravich, who died while playing basketball at a, a church gym, he uh, collapsed of a heart attack. And as they were trying to recover, he said, I feel great. Later took him to the hospital. He never recovered. They never revived him. I love the last words of Christians. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said, Our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. Or John Knox, that great Scottish preacher, said just before he died, Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. 
Dale Moody, the great evangelist, said, Earth is receding. Heaven is approaching. God is calling me. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at the last words of the most famous, most godly man that ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at the most famous words that he said, words from the cross. There are seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross. We looked at three of them last week. We'll look at three of them this week. And then we'll look at one of them uh, Good Friday at 6.30 on, on Friday if you choose to come to that service. Ken. Last week we looked at the words of Jesus from the cross, cross as recorded in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a word of forgiveness. He was praying to God that He would forgive those very ones who are putting Him to death. Also on the cross... He said, today you will be with me in paradise. A word of salvation to that criminal who was dying for his sins and his crimes. We also saw Luke recorded a word of surrender. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A word of forgiveness, a word of salvation, and a word of surrender. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross that come from the Gospel of John. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 19, where all of our our verses are going to come from today. All of the the last words of Jesus, the last words from the cross are going to come here. My message this morning comes from verses 26 through 30, but I want to just bring in the broader section. So we're going to be reading beginning of verse 16 through even beyond our text. Just to to set the scene. Verse 16. So Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. John 19, 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his cross, his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek, Jesus, King of the Jews. So the chief priests and the the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered and said, what I've written, I have written When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine was there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
And since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the, of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw it, he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's the testimony of the crucifixions John gives of the, the account from being placed on the cross to his suffering and anguish, his words, his death, till the time that he was taken off the cross. And the first, we're going to look at these words, these three words that he speaks on the cross. The first comes in verses 26 and 27, where Jesus says to his mother, he says, Woman, behold your son. And quickly after his words, he says to John, behold your mother. My point there, I just simply put, behold your son, behold your mother. There were several women at the foot of the cross. They're described there in, in verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And it's probably four women were there. It, it might look like in a positive, like Mary's sister was named Mary, the wife of Clopas, but that would be strange to have two daughters named Mary. So it's probably best that there were four women there. First was Mary, the mother of Jesus. The second was Mary's sister. We don't know her name. The third is Mary, the wife of Clopas. <laughs> we know little about her, except she was married to Clopas. It's a good thing, probably. The fourth is Mary Magdalene. Now, we do know some about her. Jesus had cast demons out of her, changing her life radically. You can read about it in, in uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. It just references that, that she, he cast demons out of her. And she was also one of the women who followed along with Jesus. It mentions in Luke, like verses 1 through 3, it speaks about the women who were really supporting Jesus. She continued to follow Jesus, be associated with him throughout his ministry. So Mary Magdalene was, was right there. With Jesus. And anyway, of the four at the foot of the cross, Jesus speaks to his mother. He says, Woman, behold your son. And it's not like you say, Woman, behold your son. He, maybe he, he nodded, like, Woman, behold your son. We, we don't exactly know. But when he's talking about his son, he's, he's certainly referring to John, the author of the book. He's identified in verse 27 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John refers to himself that way several times in the book of John. <clears throat> he had a special relationship with Jesus. And uh, it's, it's all appropriate that Jesus would sign, assign taking care of his mother to John, this beloved, trusted disciple. And essentially, as Jesus says this here, he's, he's looking after his mother's well-being. And thus, he's fulfilling the, the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. It wasn't out of duty, it was out of love. Jesus had a, a deep love for his mother. And so I'm calling this word the, the word of compassion. He was Jesus uh, upon the cross being compassionate for the well-being of his mother. Now obviously that wasn't outside of his character. Last week we saw Jesus not concerned with himself and his own suffering, but concerned for others. Right? You remember the word of forgiveness? Father, forgive them. They they know not what they're doing, even as they're nailing stakes into his hands and into his feet. There's a word of care and compassion for these, these soldiers 
who were putting to death at that very moment. We could have clearly understood if Jesus had lashed out at them. Ah, don't do that! Instead, it was a, a word of forgiveness because Jesus was caring for other people. He had that care and compassion. He was thinking about the eternal well-being of their souls, praying for their forgiveness. Well, not only the soldiers did he, he care for, he also cared for the, the criminal upon the cross. Remember the word of salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise, is what he said to the, um, the criminal there. It's a word of care and compassion. He was a man committing a crime worthy of death. Just think about those in the death row in our nation, right? He was on death row. He was dying for his sins. And Jesus was concerned for his soul, willing to forgive him and bring him into the kingdom, promising him that before that day was up, he would be with him in paradise, that place of pleasure. And here as well, the words of compassion, Jesus was showing his his care for the well-being of his mother. Jesus was soon to leave the earth, and we can only assume that Jesus was the one really caring for his mother. So he matched up his mother as one of his trained disciples. This was essentially right, an adoptive relationship. He, he, he was saying, Mary and John, I know you're not related, but you, know, you should be now as mother and son together. And this helps us to understand how Jesus addressed his, his mother, calling her, verse 27, woman. To us, that seems really cold, doesn't it? If you, if you would call your mother woman, that, that doesn't seem very warm. And to us, it's kind of cold and condescending, maybe even rude. But in this whole context of care and compassion, that, that could not be the case. It wasn't rude at all what Jesus was saying. He, he was seeking her well-being, showing care for his mother. He wasn't trying to be rude at this point or condescending. Maybe a better way to understand this, Jesus, by giving a, a term of endearment to this word woman like, how does it sound to you if, if verse 26, we say, Jesus said to his mother, dear woman, behold your son. Just sort of changes things in our minds. It certainly was an affectionate call and cry to this woman. I think that's best how it would come across. Now, this brings up lots of questions, right, that we don't really have answers to, but they're good questions to ask. Like, like what about Joseph? Where was Joseph? Was Jesus caring for her? And... We can only assume at this point that he died. Little is mentioned in the scripture about Joseph after, like, after the birth narrative. Joseph was there, but pretty much after that, we don't hear about Joseph very much. Second, the question asks, well, what about the brothers of Jesus? Like, Why didn't they take care of Jesus? It's a good question, and, and perhaps the best clue we have is that none of his brothers seem to believe in Jesus as yet. As yet. Um, in fact, even in John chapter 7, just back, John had told the story about how they were, were mocking Jesus. He says in John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And that comment came after they were mocking him, telling him, well, go to the Feast of Booths. Are you going up? And Jesus said, well, I'm, I'm not going up. He says, well, go up if you really are, right, this Messiah. And if you really want everybody to know about these things, you need to, to do these things. You need to do them openly and tell them to the world. Why aren't you going, right? And then he said, they said that because they didn't believe in him. As D.A. Carson said, quite apart from the fact that they were at this point quite unsympathetic to their older brother, they may not have even been in Jerusalem. Their home was in Capernaum. Right? So maybe they weren't even around. It was just mother of Jesus following Jesus around with Jesus. And, but the brothers were up in Capernaum for the Passover perhaps. Or maybe they'd been for the Passover and then they left and go, we don't even know. But there's no record of any of the brothers of the cross watching him die. But Mary was. 
and John was. And Jesus linked these two people together in family, which in some sense really were family already. You remember the story when the, Jesus was in the house teaching and the house was packed so much that the, the mother and brother of Jesus couldn't even get in. So Mary and the brothers at this point, like, they, they wanted to talk with Jesus and they, they couldn't get in. And Jesus was told, hey, your mother and your, your brothers are outside. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, right, the, the priority of the spiritual family of God. People who are seeking the Lord, those are my true family. And Jesus is merely putting that teaching into action. He gives the responsibility of caring for his mother to a, a spiritual son of his, a beloved disciple. And we read in verse 27 that from that very hour, the disciple took her into his home. And we can only assume that Mary was cared for until her dying day by her new son as Jesus was off the scene. This is a, it's a note of compassion by Jesus. And I think that is application for us. We just think about the compassion of Jesus that even on the cross, Jesus well was concerned for the well-being of others, whether it be for the soldiers or for the, the criminal who would be with Jesus in paradise or, or for his mother. But you need to realize that in the greater context of the Gospel of John, he has compassion for more than just the people around him at the cross. In fact, the whole reason for him going to a cross was to show compassion to us, Right? In dying for our sins on the cross, He was concerned for our spiritual well-being, that, that we would have eternal life, that we would know that abundant life in Jesus. That's the message of John is, right? That he, he, God so loved the world, He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the whole reason why John wrote his book was to tell about Jesus. You can just, it's right over there in chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And life in his name comes only through his death and his burial and his resurrection. That was the whole burden of Jesus, that he would come and die for the sins of his people. It's a great application for us. Christ there is caring for us as He's dying for our sins. And maybe we're not mentioned by name. Right? But that was an act of care and compassion for us. Well, let's move forward to our next word. Verse 28. Simply call it, I thirst. But Jesus says, I thirst. Verse 28. After this, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. This, I'm calling it a word of suffering. Because that's really what it, it shows it, it was. When Jesus says, I thirst, it's an expression of physical pain. And when Jesus says, I thirst, you ought to say, well, no, duh, you thirst. Jesus, well, that might be disrespectful, but like, no, I thirst. Of course he's going to thirst upon the cross. I mean, picture the scene of Jesus upon the cross. He's been stripped of his clothes. He's been whipped. Right? He's got blood right coming from his back, oozing out. He's got blood from his hands and from his feet. And here he is, stripped, laid up high upon a cross. 
out in the open in the heat of a day. Now, when you think about the climate of Israel, it's an arid climate, it's a dry climate. I think Los Angeles is really very accurate to that. But sometimes it can be like in Arizona. I recently spent some time in Arizona with my, my folks. And I found that when I was in Arizona, I drank way more water than I normally do. Kind of got some headaches as de- dehydrated, even though I was drinking more water because it was so dry there. And Jesus similarly is in a, a dry climate. He hasn't had anything to drink from the time that he was upon the cross until this point. Several hours, open, laid bare. Of course he's going to thirst. Have you ever been extremely thirsty? Maybe sometime when you're like um, playing basketball um, and you're just sweating and you're just dying for that water. Maybe a long bike ride or a long hike that you took that you forgot your water or didn't bring any water. And you're off and gone. And, and um, maybe sometimes you'd say, I'm dying of thirst. Well, you're not really dying of thirst because you're here. Right? You made it through somehow. But think of that time when you're, you've been most parched, so thirsty, right? Perhaps even you thought you were going to die unless you get some water. Well, Jesus was dying, he was thirsty, and he was suffering. It's never pleasant to be dehydrated and to realize you need to drink some water. And this suffering, by the way, was by design. The, the Romans designed the cross as the ultimate torture device where a, a criminal hangs in pain, where every breath they take increases the pain, and they, they lift their weight upon nails which hurt in order to breathe. Every time they breathe, they have to support their whole weight upon the nails. And this aspect of the timing and heat of the day just adds to their suffering. As D.A. Carson said, a man scourged, bleeding, and hanging across under the near eastern sun would be so desperately dehydrated that thirst would also be part of the torture. And so the soldiers obliged and they gave him something to drink. If you look in verse 29, we see a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and they held it up to his mouth. Now this, by the way, was the second time Jesus was offered something to drink. Matthew and Mark in their Gospels describe Jesus offering, being offered a drink on two occasions. Uh, on this one, and, and the first one, though, was offered to Jesus when he was really on the ground before they hoisted him up on the cross. He was offered, it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, wine mixed with myrrh. And when Jesus realized what that was, he refused that wine. Because that was the wine that was often given in compassion to those who were dying as a sort of um, sedative, as a sort of a, a painkiller, sort of numb the pain to make the cross more tolerable. But Jesus refused that because he wasn't in any way going to be relieved from the pain and the suffering of the cross. He was going to take the full blunt of it. So he refused that drink. He did not want any help in easing the pain of his crucifixion because he knew how important it was to, to face the full wrath of God. <clears throat> but this drink mentioned here by John was called the, the sour wine. That is the, the, the drink that was really for the, the soldiers who had to wait the day out in the sun. It says earlier there were four soldiers who were there, and this was probably from what they were drinking from as they had to sit there and wait and watch these three criminals die. And in those days, they didn't have nice water bottles, right, which we have, which we can carry around. And instead, they have vats of sour wine. That is, right, diluted wine that could give nourishments, right, without the effect of alcohol. The alcohol was there to preserve the water so that it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go bad or preserve the grapes so it wouldn't go bad. But that was by design that Jesus thirsted. It was no accident in any of this. 
In fact, you see the phrase there in verse 28? He says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, quote-unquote, parentheses, to fulfill the Scripture. Jesus said, I thirst to fulfill the Scripture. Now, what's interesting about this is nowhere does the Scripture say the Messiah will say, I thirst, but the Scriptures does say that the Messiah will thirst. And I think that's the key even to the fulfillment here is that right, he's thirsting, and, and so he wants to let the world know that he is thirsty. Um, when you look back for some scriptures of this Psalm 22, known as the crucifixion psalm because it, it details the, the things that's going to happen to Jesus on the cross, the mockings of the passerbyers, the piercing of the hands, the feet, the dividing of the garments, all right there in, in Psalm 22. It describes the cross suffering so well, even before the cross was invented, to be later invented by the Persians. But in Psalm 22, verse 15, we read, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Those are just dry words. Tongue sticking to the roof of their mouth. I'm in the, the dust of death. Dust is a dry word. It's not the mud of death. It's the dust of death. And describing this thirst, Jesus simply articulates, I thirst. Another similar Verse describes this in Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, quote, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So it's not so much his saying, I thirst, that fulfilled the Scripture as much as it was the fact that he was thirsty and they gave him this sour wine to drink. It's exactly what took place in fulfillment of the Scripture. Now, one of the burdens of the Gospel of John, as John writes, is to show that the Scriptures were indeed fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I mean, look back at verse 24. When the soldiers are dividing up their garments with Jesus, they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see who who shall be, because it was a a seamless garment. They just said, well, we can't rip this up. Just just one person gets it. So they cast lots. And the reason that happened was this was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And here it is of the death of Jesus, right? Similar emphasis. John is, is pointing that out for us so we might see that what was prophesied in the Old Testament came true at the cross of Christ. And the same was true at the, the death of Christ when the soldiers came to break the legs of those dying on the cross that they might die before sundown, that they might not be, be there on the cross when the Passover, the preparation began. They broke the legs of the other two disciples, or the other two criminals, and when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And so rather than breaking his legs, they pierced his side. And we read in verse 36, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And there was the Scripture fulfilled. And John just even looked before that. He said, verse 35, he who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling his truth. That you might believe, like he's, he's putting forth the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That, that you might know, that you might believe indeed that these things took place and, and that they were answered according to what the scriptures said. And so, likewise, the thirsting of the Messiah was exactly what was prophesied and was fulfilled in his death. And all of this really showed that Jesus really suffered on the cross really became a man, really suffered on a cross. Philip Ryken makes a good point here. He says, the thirst of Jesus Christ on the cross 
was a thirst of a dying man. It was proof he was human after all. The, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. We needed Jesus to be a man. If he's going to save us, if he was going to die in our place, if he was going to pay for the sins that we're supposed, we were supposed to pay for, then he needed to be one of us in order to do it. And this request for a drink demonstrates that he suffered like any of us would have suffered because he was a man. He was not a, an illusion. He was not a, a phantom of a man. He did not seem to be a man. No, he was thoroughly a man. And don't miss this point. Reichen continues, most secular people do not have much trouble accepting that Jesus was a man. Even most people who do not have a personal relationship with God will at least accept the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth actually walked on the earth. After all, Jesus is the best-known figure of the ancient world. And there's such a vast quantity of reliable historical evidence about his life that his existence cannot be seriously rejected. When people, you ask someone on the street, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, he's a good man, right? You hear that, right? He's a good man, a good teaching. He says, but it's different for us Christians. Christians do have a difficulty with the humanity of Jesus Christ. If secular people tend to doubt that Jesus is really God, Christians tend to forget that he really became a man. Try as we may, we cannot quite believe that Jesus was a real human who walked on the earth, right? Because we have the theology that Jesus is God and he was. And how can it be man? That's the mystery. I mean, we even celebrate in December about the mystery of the incarnation, really reflecting upon the humanity of Jesus. He says, but we forget, Reichen continues, that Jesus was sweaty and dusty and he grew tired and hungry and that he had bodily functions. And for us to hear Christ say that he was thirsty on the cross is to be reminded of how completely he entered into our humanity. That's the point of his suffering was real. It was genuine. He did become a man like us. He entered into our suffering. And that, by the way, is the gospel is that Jesus indeed entered into our suffering. That He came as a human being, and that He hungered and thirsted, and He died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here was Jesus perfect. He then upon the cross became our sin, that He might be punished for that. And Jesus thirsted that we might thirst no more. Well, let's look at our last point, right? We've seen the the word of compassion, behold your son. We've seen the word of suffering, I thirst. And now we see the word of victory. It is finished. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I think of all the words of the cross, this is my favorite Because a proclamation of victory on the cross is just one word, and it sums up so much. It's one word in the Greek text, testelestai. It's a a perfect tense, which means you can say, translate it, it has been completed. It has been done, or it stands completed. It's all been finished. It has been finished. So, like that's taken all that Jesus did up to this point and said, okay, now. It stands done. It's finished. It's a proclamation of of victory, like I have said. It's it's a job well done. It's a job well done. Even the sense here is to to perfection. Not only just to completion, but to perfection. All's gone to plan. And and, and all is finished up perfectly. If Jesus was a, a baseball player, then he pitched the perfect game. Not one of the scriptures 
that was meant to be fulfilled wasn't fulfilled. He, he went through and, and never sinned. Right? He never let anybody got a hit. He was perfect. Nothing more left to accomplish. All that wrapped up in just this one word. Tetelestai. It's finished. And J.C. Rao writes about this, this remarkable expression in the Greek, one single word in a perfect tense, it has been completed. It stands here in majestic simplicity. I think maybe that's why I like it so much. Majestic simplicity. Just this one, it's all that, like that sums up his whole life. It sums up his work on the cross. Rao continues, without a note or comment from John, we are left entirely to conjecture what the full meaning of it is. For 1,800 years, Christians have explained it. J.C. Ryle like, lived in the 1800s. That's why he said that. So we can add more. Right? For 2,000 years, Christians have explained it as best they can. And some portion of its meaning is in all likelihood has been discovered. Yet it is far from unlikely that such a word spoken on such an occasion by such a person at such a moment just before his death contains depths which no one has ever fully fathomed. No one single meaning can be sure exhaust this whole phrase. It is rich, pure, and complete with deep truths. I think maybe that's why I like it. Just because it, it causes you to really think and to really delve. Okay, so it is finished. What is finished? What is done? Well, Jesus did all that he was um, that the Father had given him to do. Every scripture concerning the Messiah was fulfilled. Scripture, his sufferings were complete. All the sufferings on earth that he had were, were all done. The payment for sin was, was accomplished. Our atonement had been made. There was nothing more to be done. Just think about the scriptures that Jesus fulfilled. As he's looking back and says, it is finished. He looks back and he was... To be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, so he was called a, a Nazarene, called Emmanuel, of the line of David, of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribe of Judah. Jesus would bring light to Galilee, it was prophesied of him. He'd speak in parables. He would heal the brokenhearted, cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He'd be praised by little children. He'd be called king like we celebrate today, coming into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9. 9. He'd be betrayed, falsely accused, hated without a cause. He'd be silent before his accusers, would be spat upon and struck. He'd be crucified with criminals. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He'd be mocked and ridiculed. Soldiers would gamble for his garment. And his bones would not be broken. Here he is upon the cross and he knows. I see you know the scripture well. Like all those things. Yes. I did them all, Father. All of them were accomplished. Some of them, right, he did. And some of them were done for him. Like even before he was born. The, the forerunner had to come. John the Baptist coming. That was prophesied. The one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Saying, make, make straight the ways of the Lord. And all those scriptures, and, and all fulfilled. Jesus said, I've done my job. I'm done. It's finished. Maybe there's some relief in his thought and his mind because he's kind of done. He's, he's finished it all. Right? 
Do you ever have a, a project that maybe you just you haven't quite finished? <laughs> have, have, you, have you ever really finished a project? Maybe that would be the, the better way to say it. Um, countless projects. Like, they, they get 99% done and you just, don't, you just don't add the trim for years, right? Or you just, you just don't quite finish it up. Well, Jesus here was all done and he says finished. I think not only just the scriptures fulfilled, but maybe when he was relieved over his sufferings, over all these. I mean, think about what he suffered. He, he was hated and despised and rejected. Those were sufferings. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He um, knew what betrayal was. He experienced mocking from his family, even if we, as we read earlier from John chapter 7. He faced persecution from the rulers. He was mocked by the people. Oh, if you are the king, if you really are the savior, take yourself down from the cross. I mean, he could have done that, but mocked like, I bet you can't do that. He, could, like, he had to lose bets, suffering as he did. He's beaten without a cause, crucified. And now, he reaches the end of that, and it's all finished. And he can look back and say that it is done all his life. In fact, Jesus had geared up for this moment. In fact, this very hour, how many times in John did he say, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. It's not come. But now my hour's come. I've been crucified, and it's all over. There was nothing more for Jesus to do except passively to be laid in the tomb and then God's Spirit would come upon him and give him life and then he'd be raised from the dead and then it would be more for him to do. But on his earthly ministry, it was all over. Nothing more for Jesus to do. And better yet for us, that means there's nothing more for us to do. Jesus paid the ransom for all of our sins. As Jesus said, it's finished. He, he abolished at the ceremonial law, we don't have to bring sacrifices because he was the one perfect sacrifice. Colossians 2.10 says that in him we stand complete. We are, we're fully complete in Jesus Christ. Not like we need to do more. It is finished. Well, I'd like to have us turn to Hebrews 10 as we, we end my message and we think about transitioning to the Lord's Supper because Hebrews 10 speaks about the finished work of Jesus Christ, how, how Jesus paid it all. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, just over and over, there's like, like one theme. It says, Jesus died once. We don't need multiple things. Jesus doesn't need to keep working. There's a one sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 1. I'm just going to walk through this text. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The mere fact that they had repetition, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, demonstrated that the sacrifice yet last week wasn't good enough for me this week. Because I sinned this week and I need to bring another sacrifice. 
and, and this week passes and they need to bring another sacrifice. And the mere fact that these sacrifices over and over and over again demonstrate these sacrifices were not a once-for-all sacrifice because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They may cover sins. They may placate God for a time, but they cannot take away our sins as Jesus did by carrying them on the cross and taking them away. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Here's just talking about his incarnation and willingness of Christ to come. And he exposits from Isaiah, from Psalm 40, when he said above, yet you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Those are offered according to law, right? So the, the sacrifice according to law, God says, yeah, I don't really have pleasure in them, right? Because they're not sufficient. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So he does away with these Old Testament sacrifices. And here it is, a statement of completeness. And by that will, that is the coming of Jesus, His willingness, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's one sacrifice. It is done. It is finished at the cross. Verse 10. It's done. And he goes on. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Let's talk about the priest. So not only the sacrifice come, but also the priest. Right? They stand there. Their work is never done. Contrast to Jesus, after his death, he, he went to heaven and he sat down, signifying his work was done. And here comes this other statement. We heard it in verse 10. We hear it in verse 14. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One sacrifice. It was all done. Jesus didn't have to come back again and be sacrificed. He didn't have to be sacrificed over and over and over again in the Mass. No, it was one sacrifice for Him. For all time. For all of us. It's the centrality of Jesus upon the cross. The, the, the climax of history. Everything before it looked up to that. Jesus said, yes, all these things, it's finished. And then everything after that just looks back to the same sacrifice of Christ. Again, okay, those are two statements in, chapter, in verse 10 and verse 14. One offering once for all time. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, verse 16, This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days declares the Lord that I'll put my laws in their hearts and will write them on their minds. This is the new covenant, by the way, after I do that. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then verse 18, Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering of sin. See, in the New Covenant, the promise is that the, the sacrifice will come. I'll never remember their sins again. If you don't have sins to remember, there's no sacrifice you need to make for sins because Jesus dealt with all those and they're there. They're never to be remembered again because they've been forgiven. There's no forgiveness of these. There's no longer any offering for sin. So just consider it again. Verse 10, and by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. It was one sacrifice. And that's what Jesus says, it is finished. He, he wasn't looking forward to more sacrifices in heaven. 
he wasn't looking forward to, to like more suffering and more things he needed to do because that one sacrifice was so great and so mighty that it was sufficient for all of our sins. Indeed, we sing that, sim, that hymn, right? Jesus paid it all. That's it. He paid it all. And he was alluding to that when he said, it is finished. It's all done. He paid everything. It wasn't a, a down payment. It wasn't a mortgage that he started going to chip away at. And it was one payment that he made. It is finished. So there it is. Behold your son, behold your mother, a, a word of compassion. A thirst, a, a word of suffering. And it is finished, a word of victory. Such are the words upon the cross. And we'll get one more Good Friday service. We're going to look at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at that moment when God forsook God. So let's pray as we transition to the Lord's Supper here this morning. Father, I pray that these last words of Christ would grip us. Just hearing the last words of people are, are, are very gripping oftentimes when they think about their life and what's most important. And Jesus was surely calculated here upon the cross when he had little breath to make any words. He conserved his energy for sure. And these are the words that he spoke that you have preserved for us really to reflect upon. And so I, I pray, God, just e- even on these words that we would realize that Jesus is full of compassion towards us. He thinks of us. He thought of us upon the cross. And Father, also just he, he did suffer for us. Indeed, truly, every last prophecy of his suffering came to pass. He took the full brunt, not only physical sufferings, but also took the shame of the cross, took the, the wrath of God upon himself. But it is victorious. It's a victorious word. And Father, so I pray that we would go forth from this place victorious, excited and encouraged about what Jesus has done for our souls. So Father, as we also prepare for the Lord's Supper, just we pray you'd expose our hearts, cause us to examine ourselves, uh, that we might confess our sins before you. We might, again, place our hope and trust in Christ, whereas our, our only hope is to be found. Thank you that he finished his work so that we don't have to work for our salvation, but it's all been accomplished there in the cross of Christ. So, so Father, be with us as we think about doing what Jesus told us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. So may we remember you with these songs, with the bread, and with the cup that we drink. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.